Before I read the scripture this morning, there are a couple of words in there. There are actually people and places that may not be familiar to you because um, Colossians is not a book that gets uh, a lot of attention necessarily, but there are two words in there that are important. One is the area in which the city of Colossa itself is situated, and that's the area of Phrygia. Now, Phrygia is an ancient kingdom, and it's actually in what is today western Turkey. Now, even if you don't know anything about ancient Near Eastern culture and geography, you already know something about Phrygia, because Phrygia was the kingdom from which King Midas came. And later in Greek and Roman mythology, King Midas was memorialized as the one who had the golden touch. And I guess he made mufflers. But everybody has heard of King Midas. There's also a special mention in the last line of this passage about uh, barbarians and Scythians. Well, the Scythians, there is a reason that they are mentioned specifically in that passage. The Scythians were the original bad boys of the barbarian world. They were a barbarian's barbarian. Uh, They were the banditos, the hell's angels, the MS-13 of their day. And if you were a Scythian, then you were far beyond the kind of barbarian that the world had experienced before. So that's why Paul has singled them out for mentioning as a group. Now please hear God's word from Paul's letter to the Colossians and listen especially for the contrast that Paul draws between earthly things and things above. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all and is in all. The word of the Lord. Well, if you're like me, you probably spent a big part of the last couple of weeks watching parts of the national conventions. And um, 
if you're like me, you probably went away with a few answers and a lot of questions. Now, just so you're not overly concerned, this is not going to be a sermon about uh, who to vote for or which party knows this and which party knows the other. But this is about something that really hit home with me as I watched and listened to representatives of both conventions make their speeches and make their comments and be interviewed before and after the conventions. And the thing that struck home with me was how difficult it's going to be for you and for me to keep perspective on things over the next few months. Now, the reason is that so much of what I heard was focused on what our passage would call earthly things. It's not that they're unimportant things. They're very important things. They're things like health, like money, like education, like the future, like personal security and safety. A lot of very important things, but at the same time, a lot of things that are so earthly and so much a part of our daily experience that there is a hidden danger in their capturing all of our intelligence and all of our imagination. And so one of the challenges for us in this passage is how do we keep that sort of uh, perspective in our life that reminds us we're not totally tied to this world or the things of this earth. Now, Paul does that because he reminds us to look up and to see where all of human history is headed. And he does that in this uh, beautiful word picture, really, of Christ's death and his resurrection. And sometimes word pictures, as well as pictures in art, stick with us in ways that uh, the words themselves simply don't. I remember growing up, and I probably was only there till I was in second grade, but the church in which I grew up had a large mural that covered the front of the church, and it was a mural of the Ascension. And in that mural, all ethnic groups and occupations and trades and everything else that you can imagine were being lifted up as Christ ascended. They were being drawn to him. And that picture has stayed with me as a way of keeping perspective on a lot of things that go on in our world. Some of you may have seen the movie When Harry Met Sally. And the character in there, the Harry character, is Billy, played by Billy Crystal. And uh, Harry is a very neurotic person. He's preoccupied with his own health, with how long he's going to live, what's going to happen next. And at one point he tells Sally, I always read the last chapter of the book first because that way if I die, I'll know how things turn out. Well, in a way, that's what Paul is doing with the Christian community at Colossae. He's giving them a glimpse of how things turn out. So matter, no matter what happens in between, they'll know how things turn out. Last week, Andy walked us through some of the imagery in baptism. Next week, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper around this table. 
And those things remind us, just as Paul does in this letter, that we are tied to Jesus in his death, in his resurrection. Baptism is a visible reminder of that. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of that. In fact, we usually end the words of institution, if they happen to be the words that are in 1 Corinthians, with uh, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Now, that's the theological language that underlies what Paul is saying, but the plain English version of that is that where we go, Jesus goes. And where Jesus goes, eventually we'll go. As human beings, we're all wired to go where we look. It's just something about how we're put together. Those of you who have um, learned how to ride a a motorcycle, and a lot about that is counterintuitive, have probably run across the phrase target fixation. And um, target fixation is where you keep your vision on a certain point, And that can either work for you or against you. You know, if it works for you, then uh, you've maybe seen pictures of a Grand Prix motorcycle race where people are screaming around these corners at 150 miles an hour, and they're not looking at the ground. They're looking way down the road because that's where they want to be. If they look too closely at those those around them or if they look... um, Even worse, if they look at the ground, uh, that's not where they want to be. And the saying among motorcycle riding instructors is if you look down, you go down. Because you want to look where you intend to be. There is great value in looking up. Now Paul says that we look up primarily by using two things. We set our heart on something, we desire it, and we also set our mind on something. We make it the biggest part of our thought life. It's a lot easier to talk about that than it is to do it. In fact, I don't think we can do it individually. I think it demands that we do that as a community, as a group, as a fellowship. We do it by taking on some things and by letting go of some things. Paul uses the image almost of clothing, the old self and the new self. When he talks about putting things to death and ridding yourselves of certain things, he's really using language that could be almost interchangeable, the point being that no matter which one you do, they're both painful and difficult. They're not easy. There are a lot of lists of individual things that Paul reels off for us. And you can spend a lot of time looking at those lists. Sometimes if you're like me, you'll go through the list and say, well, that one applies to me. Well, that one doesn't apply to me, but it might apply to somebody else. And, you know, to me, the helpful thing or the more helpful thing at this point is to think about the ways in which Paul groups those various individual things. And he uses three umbrellas to do that. One is that he puts them under the, uh, a group of them, and that group begins with sexual immorality and I think ends with greed. 
But that's under the umbrella of unregulated wants. That goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve both wanted to be in the position of God himself, and they wanted to call their own shots. They wanted to know their destiny. They wanted to be in control. Those who uh, study the science of leadership and management know that one of the characteristics of leaders is that they have developed the capacity to self-regulate, to step outside themselves, to listen to the things they say, to look at the things they do in their interactions with others, and to say, this far I'll go, this far I won't. Unregulated wants are things that take us away from having a vision of things above. There's also a heading, an umbrella called disposition, or I'm calling disposition. That's the one that includes anger and malice and a bunch of other things. Disposition is basically our stance, our approach to life. You know, if you go into a certain disposition or a certain situation, whether it's a conversation or a meeting, uh, a relationship, and your disposition is angry, or your disposition is to bear ill will, malice toward another person, then that pretty much determines the outcome of that meeting and that relationship and that encounter. And Paul is saying, be careful of the disposition that you take into um, your relationships. Drug and alcohol and addiction and um, relationship counselors have a saying. They say, you know, pay attention to the person that you're talking to. And if they're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, don't try to strike up a meaningful conversation the outcome is usually not going to be pretty. The disposition that we bring to an encounter often determines how it will turn out. And the last thing that Paul, or the last umbrella that Paul mentions is the umbrella of truthfulness. He says it in the negative way. He says, do not lie. And the reason he's, he's listing it by itself is if you had to pick out a single synonym for faith, the one I would choose is trust. And the single most destructive thing to trust is untruth. Especially uh, spreading rumors or things that are not founded in fact. It damages our relationships with God and with un one another. I can recall very well having a conversation with a pastor and I'd ask him earlier how things were going that day. And he told me in a lot of detail, probably more detail than I expected, um, <clears throat> that things were not going well. And a lot of things were going extremely not well for him. And about that time, somebody walked down the hall and said, how's everything going? And he looked at him with a big smile and said, great. Later, I said, why did you do that? That is anathema to Christian community. Well, he didn't like that, but it's true. 
God gives us one another so that we can soften the blows that life brings our way. And sometimes being truthful, even in small things and in small ways, allows opportunity for ministry to happen. This passage is partly about looking and it's partly about doing. Paul says you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. We may need to take some old things off to stick with Paul's image of clothing, and we may need to put some new things on. We just get comfortable with things that we're familiar with. We like having them around, and they become our blind spots. I have a good friend that I would call, in a nice way, a fashion monster. She always knows what's in. She always knows the latest trend. She always knows what people are supposed to wear and not wear. And one day we were going out to dinner and she said, why do you, do you have just one white shirt and one pair of dark slacks? And I said, well, I, I don't. I have several white shirts and several pair of white slack, or dark slacks. And I realized that I had become very familiar with those. I liked them, still do. It bugs her to death. But often we become so familiar and comfortable with certain things in our lives, we're afraid or unwilling to put them aside. Our dispositions, our wants, and our truthfulness are like clothes. They're often the very first things that someone else experiences when they come in contact with us. And the good news is that producing some very small changes in those can create dramatic results. For years, I had wanted to go to New York City at Christmas time. I wanted to see all the decorations up. I don't, you know, I don't know why. I'd been at different points of the year, but I wanted to go up there and see all the decorations. And last fall, we had a chance to go up there. So our excuse for going was to see our son and daughter-in-law who had just moved there. We arrived. It was mid-December, and the first thing we did was head down to Rockefeller Center to see the big tree and walk around all the storefronts on Fifth Avenue and there was one storefront that was absolutely breathtaking. And it was Saks Fifth Avenue. And I get nothing for mentioning that. Uh, <laughs> what they had done at Saks Fifth Avenue was commission someone to create works of art in all their store windows. And they did it in a very clever way. They started with two identical people. They were identical in every window. They were mannequins. And they started with a basic color theme, which was black and white, and the lighting, which was kind of a bluish purple. And what I saw as I began to walk around the store on all three sides was that in each window there were subtle changes to the clothing 
and to the accessories that made everything different. It made the people look different. It made the scene look different. It had a different level of attractiveness to me as an observer. Sometimes in our own lives, even making small changes in familiar things can do that with those around us. This fall will be an extra challenge to lift our vision and to broaden our vision beyond earthly things because we're going to be reminded daily that a lot of earthly things are important and they need our attention. It'll be a challenge to make even small personal changes, but the good news is those small personal changes can produce dramatic results, just like the store windows. And the truth is, we can't do that alone. To do that, you and I need each other. We need the constant reminders and the support and the truthfulness that we can offer one another in a Christian community. Each one of us has a role in the lives of those around us. That's why God put us together. If you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, for that's where Christ is.